Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Guy Hanson, and I'm Director of Exhibitions at the National Library of Australia, and it's with great pleasure that I welcome you to this event tonight. As we begin, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land we're now privileged to call home. I'm delighted to see so many faces in the audience um, here to discuss the Griffith Review Edition 48, Enduring Legacies. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be collaborating with the Griffith Review uh, tonight and throughout 2015 to bring issues and conversations um, in the journal to Canberra. The Griffith Review was established in 2003 and since then has been setting the agenda for current affairs discussion for its themed editions. The Griffith Review provides outstanding public intellectual uh, discussion and uh, I think is a, a vital platform um, for long-form writing. And I think that's captured very much in the book we're discussing tonight, um, Enduring Legacies, because it really is a book um, with, with these fantastic essays. Um, it, the theme, of course, is the legacy of uh, um, the 20th century and the wars that Australia has been involved in. And I think it's a lovely tie-in with our uh, exhibition, which is on at the moment, uh, Keepsakes, Australians in the Great War, where you can see some fantastic material about Australia's uh, experience of the First World War. So um, I'd like to welcome um, tonight's uh, chair, uh, Dr Julian Schultz, to the National Library. Um, Julian is the founding editor... Julianne is the founding editor of the Griffith Review and a professor at the Griffith Centre for Cultural Research. Um, she was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2009 for her services to the community as a journalist, writer, writer editor and academic. And Julianne will chair tonight's proceedings. Join me in welcoming our host. Thank you very much. It's a great uh, pleasure and privilege to be back here at the National Library. Um, we generally do a couple of events here each year and, and they're always highlights on our, on our calendar. So um, it's great to be back here for, for this particular edition. Um, knowing that the, the centenary of, um, of, of Gallipoli was coming up this year, we felt that it was a topic that we couldn't, we couldn't afford to miss, but we were very determined to try and find a way of addressing it which was different to what we anticipated would be the sort of the, the mainstream conversation that was happening around, around this uh, anniversary. So I was very pleased to be able to work with uh, Peter Cochran on pulling together this distinguished group of authors who've, who've all written for this, uh, this edition. Um, Peter is, is a, a very fine historian and um, his knowledge of this field and of the people who had something new and original to say meant that when we went into the sort of commissioning process 18 months or so ago, I had every confidence that we would, we would be aiming high and, and probably getting there. And I think that's what we've managed to do. I mean, I think that the, the range of writers... Um, that are who have who have who have uh, participated in the in this collection are really um, presenting new material um, on a subject that I think many of us may have thought had been done to death, so to speak. Um, so, <laughs> bad pun. Um, so, what we decided to do was to um, to to approach the uh, approach the anniversary by looking at the legacies, not just of what happened in Gallipoli or the subsequent battles of the of the First World War, but to really try and unpick um, some of the legacies of the wars of the 20th century. Because, of course, this year is the 100th anniversary of of, of the landing at Gallipoli, but it's the 70th anniversary of the end of the uh, the war in the Pacific. It's the whatever anniversary it is of the end of the Vietnam War. I mean, it's one of those those five number years which uh, which works for a whole lot of lot of different areas and and as we started to think about that we realized that the that the making of a nation argument um, plays out in all sorts of different ways and they're some of the legacies that that are explored in in this edition um, I think at this point um, it's probably fair to say that there's a bit of um, bit of Gallipoli fatigue around and certainly the um, the commercial media was somewhat disappointed by the lack of interest in the uh, in the in the programs that they were they were broadcasting, but on the other hand, you know, a quarter of Canberra's population turned up for the uh, for the dawn service um, on on Anzac Day, um, and I forget the millions. I think it was three point six million or something watched the the ABC's commemoration. So there was a, there was still an interest and a hunger um, for it. I'm sort of hoping that now that 
now that that's done, that there is a platform for a different sort of conversation that bounces off that, and that's a bit of what we're going to do tonight. So to help us on that way this evening, let me introduce our four panellists, each of whom have written wonderfully for this, for this edition. I'm sure they're all quite well known to you, but I'll go through the the formality of introducing to you. Um, Professor Peter Stanley at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, um, has had a very distinguished career writing about, about military history and so on um, in the city for a long time. He was uh, formerly the principal historian at the War Memorial and for a time at the, Australian, uh, the Museum of Australia as well. Um, he's the author of 20... It says here 27 books, but he tells me the 28th is about to be published. Um, <laughs> so he's prolific. Um, um, but, uh, but an increasingly important voice in, in this... Well, a very important voice in this, in this domain. So please welcome Peter. Thank you. Uh, Frank Bongiorno um, lectures in history at the Australian National University um, and has been making his presence very much felt with a, a series of important books in, in, recent, in recent years. Um, this essay that he's written in this, uh, this edition is part of an Australian Research Council-funded project examining war and memory, um, Anzac Day at Home and Abroad, a centenary history of Australia's National Day. Please welcome Frank. Mer Meredith McKinney lived in uh, Kyoto for 20 years um, and she's been a visiting fellow at the Japan Centre at the Australian National University where she translates classical and contemporary Japanese literature and is on the shortlist for award for the New South Wales Premier's Award for her translation work coming up um, at the Sydney Writers' Festival in a few weeks. Um, and Meredith has written a truly original piece, which is just a fantastic addition to this, uh, uh, this edition, um, which she'll talk about in a minute. So please welcome Meredith. And, and uh, last but not least, Professor uh, Tim bonning Haiti is the Director of the Australian Centre for Environmental Law at ANU. Um, he was one of the curators of the National Gallery of Victoria's exhibition, Vienna Art and Design. Um, his books include uh, one which you'll talk about tonight, but one which we won't talk about tonight, <laughs> <laughs> The Colonial Earth, um, which won both the New South Wales and Queensland's Premier's History's History Prize. So please welcome Tim. So what I'd like to do is to ask each of our uh, speakers to talk a little bit about their, um, their pieces, but I want to put it in the context of the final words of the volume, which are the final words in Tim's essay, um, just so we sort of frame this discussion. And Tim will talk about his piece, but the, the thing I want to read to you is, a family's story, however striking, is not enough. Context is vital. Anniversaries can be more than occasions for remembrance. They may transform our understanding of what is being commemorated. That has never happened, happened to me in Australia, but in Vienna it did, when I least expected it, 75 years after the fact. So let's talk about a little bit about how that remembering, forgetting, commemorating, and what gets, what gets lost in that process. So we'll come to you at the end, and we'll start with Peter. Okay. Thanks, Julianne, and good evening, everybody. Um, the other week, Mervyn Bendel described me as a foe of Anzac. Um, now, I don't think I am a foe of Anzac, but I do believe in asking straight questions about Anzac and what it means for us. The essay in the Griffith Review, um, I'm very pleased to be a part of, but the contention I offer is that um, there's been a, a great deal of attention, adulation even, paid to Victoria Cross winners especially in the last decade or so, much more than previously. So there's, there's new statues being unveiled, new books published, naming of streets and parks and things. Now, I need to say straight up that, of course, if you were awarded the Victoria Cross, you were without question brave, but not all brave men received the Victoria Cross. Um, it was a very subjective and political process. For example, just to point out that um, about half the Australian Victoria Cross winners on the Western Front were awarded their medals in 1918, so clearly, it's not just a matter of bravery, it's bravery within a particular context. Um, and the way in which Victoria Crosses are being treated at the moment, uh, I think, departs quite substantially from the way in which Charles Bean treated them nearly a century ago. So, for example, there have been four Victoria Crosses awarded to Australians who served in Afghanistan. Uh, all brave men, I, I, I concede that, of course. But some of them have become celebrities. So, for example, Ben Robert Smith, VC, is on television even more than I am. So, <laughs> clearly, this is, this is a worry. Um, so what does this mean for us? And 
I'm arguing that the adulation that the Victoria Cross is receiving at the moment has an implication for the way in which we understand the centenary of the Great War, the war which we're commemorating at the moment. Because for most people in that war, death was industrial, anonymous, disgusting, uh, it was slaughter. But when you focus on the Victoria Crosses, of course, you, you focus on the individual, the heroic, the noble. Um, and to point to Julianne's uh, picking up Tim's argument, what does this mean? What's the context? Well, this anniversary gives us a, an opportunity to reflect on what that treatment of the Victoria Cross means. And I think that it's misrepresenting the Great War. And that's something I think we ought to think and talk about. Thank you. Okay. Do you want to tell us a bit more about why you think it's misrepresenting? Um, well, I thought I had. But um, mm. the, uh, Robert Macklin, uh, who's a, a Canberra author, possibly in the audience, wrote a book about one of the many recent books about Victoria mm. Cross winners. And he, t he said that focus on the, on the Victoria Cross highlights the egalitarian strain mm. in Australian military history. Now, frankly, I think that's nonsense because it's the absolute opposite of egalitarian, mm -hmm. that focusing on the 100 Australians who've won the Victoria Cross compared to the million or so who served in war clearly is focusing on a very small, elite, select group. And it's diverting our attention from the, the mass experience because the mass experience was none of those things. It generally wasn't heroic. It, it, was, it was unpleasant. It was anonymous. Um, but it's one that we should focus on, and it's one that Australians used to focus on. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be wary that our military history is, is being unduly skewed. All right. Okay, thank you. And I knew that by pushing you for that little bit extra, we'd get a very good segue to Frank. Oh, <laughs> Thanks, Joanne. Well, yes, I, I wrote about Anzac and Labor, which I called a legend with class. Um, and it really, my, my interest in that topic, in some way, began with the historians. You know, though. That group of, of historians now, really 40, 50 years ago, and I'm thinking of Russell Ward, Geoffrey Searle, very well-known historians of their generation, who really grappled with why a legend that in the 19th century had been associate, associated with all that was radical in Australian history, the very things Peter was just talking about, actually, mm -hmm. egalitarianism, anti-authoritarianism, all these things had been associated, I guess, with the left... Um, and yet they come to attach themselves to Anzac and seem then to have been appropriated by the right. And I, I found yeah, this a really fascinating debate, which in some ways, like a lot of historical debates, ran out of steam and, and seems a little bit quaint now. But it seems to me that it still raises really interesting issues about the ways in which, particularly the first AIF, I think, you know, the Australian Army in the First World War, discloses the fact that it was predominantly a working-class army. In fact, we have yeah. someone here, Peter who wrote a book a number of years ago, Bad Characters, that I think uh, is about one of the ways in which uh, we can see it as a working-class army. Mm. As you would expect, uh, an army of more than 400,000 people, it had some pretty bad characters in it. It had the respectable as well as the rough. It had, uh, you know, those who, who saw the war as a test of their character mm. as well as those who saw it as, a, as, a, as, a, as an outlet for their, their criminal behaviour. Mm. And so that, that was one, one um, you know, one way of answering that kind of question that does fascinate me. So in terms of legacies, I guess I'm interested in, you know, what is the legacy of all of that for working class history, for labour movement history, for Labour Party history? And I end the essay by really talking about essentially uh, uh, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. I've been the last few years researching the 1980s and it, it, it seemed to me that that is the crucial decade, I think, in the modern revival and reinvention of Anzac. And if so, we really needed to look at I think the ways in which Bob Hawke and, and the Labor Party in the 80s grappled with it, and then, of course, very famously Keating in the, that uh, eulogy, I think, which is, the, to me, the, the greatest document, really, perhaps that we have in our public culture mm. of the First World War, his eulogy to the unknown soldier on uh, the 11th of November 1993. I think if this had come out a little later, I might have ended with Tony Abbott, because I think that his dawn service speech recently is an absolutely fascinating document because of the way in which it actually elevates the AIF out of history. I mean, they are now really a part of the communion of saints. Uh, and I, I thought that the, the last... Read the last... Well, in fact, I'll, let me read. I brought it in. Um, uh, yes, they are us, he says. They are us. Um, and when we strive enough for the right things, we can be more like them. So much has changed in 100 years, but not the things that really matter. Duty, selflessness, moral courage, always these remain the mark of a decent human being... They did their duty, now let us do ours. They gave us an example, now let us be worthy of it. They were as good as they could be in their time, 
now let us be as good as we can be in ours. Those of us who were raised as Catholics remember um, that that is effectively a sketch of the saint. And, and, and I think that's a really, to me, a very important moment, actually, mm. in, in the modern evolution of, of, of uh, war memory in Australia. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, I mean, in that, because you, what you write about um, is, is that process by which the, the left went from not having a great regard, or, you know, feeling this, this was a history that was owned by the right, mm. to one that turned, you know, in a flash, to one that, that uh, under Hawke essentially became, a, you know, the Labor Party became very much to own it as well, um, which is, I think, an interesting flip to Meredith in terms of the process of talking about Japan and, and its relationship with, with nuclear history. Uh. Uh, yes, yes, that's absolutely right, Julian. Yeah, and it's something that I wasn't aware of until I started delving into what produced the essay that I wrote, which was about the relationship between Hiroshima, as in the symbol of... Um, you know, the, the atomic bomb and all that that reverberates with. And Fukushima, which is, you know, the um, nuclear disaster that happened in 2011, which is still, speaking of reverberations, reverberating hugely in Japan in all sorts of ways. And um, why I wrote the essay really was, or, why, well, I was invited to write the essay, I have to say, but, but I was very pleased to do it because I had a huge question in my mind which is that when I first went to Japan after Fukushima, a couple of weeks after it had happened, I was expecting there to be a lot of talk in which Hiroshima and Fukushima were in some way brought into the conversation together. And what I found was that there was, to me, a very puzzling silence around anything to do with the relationship between the two. And while the two are obviously hugely different things... Nevertheless, the fact that this was a, a nuclear disaster of unprecedented proportions that had happened to Japan twice seemed to me hugely significant and very puzzling that people were, in fact, it seemed to me resisting any kind of connection between the two. So I sort of sensed that there was this silence, this strange silence was a kind of cultural well, you could say it was a cognitive dissonance in a way. You know, there were two two things that just weren't cohering in people's minds. And, in fact, when I went on the internet and had a little look at, you know, the conversation you always find these days on the internet around everything, um, people were reacting quite angrily to the idea of any connection at all between Hiroshima and Fukushima. So I thought, well, what's going on? Why not just go back and see what the story actually is? How did nuclear power come to be in Japan? How did it come to arrive at the point that it has arrived at you know, where it's just a huge and very problematic presence in Japan. And I discovered something which is a, a very complex story, but um, actually has affected us all, not just Japan, I think, which is that directly after the war, in order to contain the horrors that the atomic bomb produced around the world, the kind of shock of the possibility of nuclear war as a real threat now, and, you know, the dreadful devastation of the, of the bomb, the US administration decided on a tactic to promote nuclear energy as a peaceful thing. And there was a very famous speech in 1953 by President Eisenhower called Atoms for Peace. That was the name of his speech, and in it he was promoting the atom as not something which was inevitably going to drag people towards disaster, but was in fact going to be a saviour for us all by producing a whole new technology which would encourage peace and prosperity far into the future, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> and when I looked into the question of, of that, I realised that there was a great deal of cynicism behind that because it was a, essentially a Cold War tactic as far as I could see. So my essay really tries to delve into that and to see just how, in what fascinating ways, in fact, that has led to Japan's present situation. And um, it's a long story, and I, I would encourage you to read about Atoms for Peace and perhaps the essay as well if you're interested at all. It is very fascinating. So things get remembered and forgotten and wiped out of, of collective memory. So, Tim, in terms of your experience of of trying to put those pieces back together again. Um, 
tell us how you got to the estate. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, can I say that one, I, th I think one of the great strengths of um, this issue of the Griffith Review is its range. And Meredith's piece um, about Japan is um, a really powerful example of that and hopefully um, my piece about um, Kristallnacht um, is okay as well. Um, it came about when Peter Cochran, who's sitting over there, um, rang me and talked about the issue and said, could I write a piece about the Holocaust? Um, and I said, I'll think about it. <laughs> and within a couple of hours, I'd worked out that there was something I'd been wanting to write for a while, which I thought might, might fit. Um, unlike the other pieces, it's a, it's a kind of um, a piece of, of micro-history. Um, I... Um, in, in, in 2013, um, my book, Good Living Street, um, which had come out here in 2011, was published in Vienna in translation. And up to about a fortnight before I left, I thought that I was simply going to spruik the book. And running up Mount Ainsley, just behind the Woolman Wharf, um, I suddenly realised that it was the 75th anniversary. I, I was going in November and it was the 75th anniversary of Kristallnacht and it was also the 75th anniversary of when my mother and grandmother and great-aunt had fled Vienna, which I wrote about in, in Good Living Street. And the week or whatever I had in, in Vienna in November 2013 were extraordinary. But one of the most extraordinary things which happened to me, which is what my essay is really about, is that on my final night in Vienna, which was the night of um, Kristallnacht, I was sitting in this little restaurant, which I often go to, and I was reading the newspapers and I was particularly reading their reportage um, and their essays about the 75th anniversary. And I read a piece by a man called Frederick Morton, who's a famous American writer, who was a refugee from Vienna. And he wrote about his father's arrest um, in Vienna in 1938. And then he also wrote, which a lot of people who write about Crystal Knight do, those men were typically, it was always men who were arrested and they were often sent to Dachau. And he wrote about his father's return and his father returning bald. My essay's called My Grandfather's Head. And I'd written in Good Living Street a little bit. My book is mainly, that book is mainly about my mother's family. I'd written a little bit about my dad's family. And I had written a little bit about my grandfather's return from Dachau and how my dad had gone to the station and one day his dad came back. And sitting in this restaurant in Vienna, reading this account of Frederick Morton's father, I finally kind of... I've been, th I've been thinking about these things since 2003, devoting a lot of my life to them. And I suddenly realised... I'd read a lot of accounts of Crystal Knight. And one of... And I suddenly realised that one of the things which many, many people had written about in their reminiscences and accounts of Crystal Knight, and then what happened after, was these men coming back with their heads shaven. And that my dad had never talked about this, and the reason he hadn't talked about it was that my grandfather was already bald. He'd gone bald very young. So one of the great kind of markers of the transformation of the men who were imprisoned in Dachau, who were the last big cohort of men who also were released from concentration camp um, by the Nazis, was not just that they'd been bruised and battered and had teeth bashed out, but the, 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 the standard, clearest sort of mark of what had happened to them was that they returned with their heads shaven. And this hadn't happened to my grandfather because he already had no hair. And for me, this was, this was a, I'd never expected to be part of any form of commemoration like this, um, particularly one in, in Vienna. And for me, there was a lesson in terms of 
the slowness of understanding history. But here I'd been on this journey grappling with my mother's and father's family and, and these family stories since my mother died in 2003. And yet here I was a decade later sitting in Vienna and I suddenly had this new understanding of what had happened to my grandfather. And as in, in that final paragraph which Julianne read, this was on a kind of optimistic level, I guess, one would hope that these commemorations do have that effect for us individually and collectively, that in some kind of way they do give they do seriously enrich and complicate our understanding of the past rather than simply being opportunities for sloganeering and possibly electioneering and everything else and glorification which they seem to me to have become and um, yeah so my piece is about on a very micro level mm. how that happened to me where I least expected it in this restaurant in Vienna. Mm. So that gives you a bit of a sense of the range of the edition and it, it pulls together very very beautifully. Part of the reason that, that I've put Tim's piece at the end was it sort of bookends a piece by Gerhard Fischer um, who writes about German what happened to Germans in Australia during the First World War, culminating with the deportation of 6,000 people at the end of the war, many of whom were second and third generation born here but were identified as German and therefore sent off, sent back to a country that many of them didn't know. And so it was sort of... I'd said to Gerhard when he was writing it, I said, what I'm interested in is how that sort of multiculturalism, sort of multicultural project, which was there even in the 19th century, mm. took in a way to come back after the end of the, of the, the, uh, the later wars of the 20th century before it becomes manifest here. And, and your piece actually so tied those ends up very, very beautifully as far as, as far as I was concerned in my own sort of editor's head. Um, so what I'm interested in now is just to ask each of you to why you think that so many people in this city came on that cold morning, on the 25th of, of April, out there for that half an hour of silence while that commemoration was happening and what it says about in terms of a sort of making of a nation. Um, because there's a lot of other levels which are actually not about, I think, war, war itself, but speak to that question. So I'll throw a question that Alex Sloan threw to me on, on ABC Radio this afternoon. Why did so many people turn up? What, what, what was going on? You were hiding out. So you <laughs> I was hiding out, actually. On, I spent Anzac Day in Norfolk Island because it was inaccessible. Um, can I say I wasn't there, yeah. obviously, but, uh, but people who were there contest the numbers that have been put about. Mm. Now, obviously, lots of people turned up. You can mm. see that. But whether it was 120,000 mm. appears to be a bit dubious. Right. Anyway, ha but having said mm. that, um, clearly it's important for lots of people, and it's probably important for lots of people here, but I think we need to be clear that it's not important for a lot of Australians. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if 3 million people watched it on the TV mm -hmm. or turned out to the services, that still leaves 21 million people who did nothing. Mm -hmm. So let's not kid ourselves that Anzac is something that all Australians care about or feel a connection to, because mm -hmm. they don't. Mm -hmm. And we're kidding ourselves if we do. Um, and I think one of the problems is, is that the people who make the books and especially make the television assume that all Australians know and care about Anzac. And that's one reason why I think, as you mentioned, mm. the television ratings bombed. Mm. And it's, uh, uh, several series, Gallipoli, mm. the 60-minute special, the ABC, um, Australian Story, they all did very poorly in mm. the ratings. Mm. Uh, in some cases, they got less than they thought, than mm. they expected. In others, they got fewer than they mm. usually get. Mm. And I think the reason for that is, is that Anzac is sustained by a relatively small proportion of the country who cares very deeply about it, but it actually doesn't connect with a, large, mm -hmm. a larger proportion of the population. And the key is, excuse me for going on, mm -hmm. is that um, Frank mentioned the Prime Minister's <coughs> remarks, taking the, the Anzacs out of history, and I think that's what's happened in every television programme that's been on lately. There's Australia, the story of us, uh, and of course it's not us, it's the story of them. Mm -hmm. uh, a, the war that changed us, it didn't. It changed them 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. It didn't change us. Mm -hmm. And in every television series the narrators or the, the presenters will talk about we did this and we did that. And, of course, none of us here did anything. Mm. So I think that there's a, 
a, an important group who control the way in which Anzac is represented in the media, who have a deeper attachment to it, or believe that people have a deeper attachment to it, but I think the truth is otherwise. Mm. Tim? Um, I went in um, 1990, it's the only time I've been, for the 75th anniversary. Um, I think I went partly for kind of professional reasons. Um, mm. I was writing my book about Burke and Wills and um, was very interested in days of commemoration, very influenced by um, Ken Inglis and his, all, all his writing. Um, this year, um, I didn't go, um, but I did go jogging up Mount Ainsley later in the day, um, as I do quite frequently. And um, it struck me that quite a few of the people came from out of town, was my sense as I kind of jogged, jogged through, that they weren't um, Canberrans. Um, I was cu curious about the people who were going up and up, up the path at the back of the War Memorial. Um, at one point early on in the run, I thought that quite a few of them were what one would have at one point called New Australians, um, who didn't have any... Um, who, who, whose families may not have been here in 1915, and I was wondering whether they were doing the walk purely as tourism or whether they'd already been at the dawn um, service. Um, from my perspective, I, I know that as I ran down, someone was speaking. It might have... Was Tony Abbott speaking around... Was his, someone was speaking around lunchtime. I heard this voice booming out and it talked about how um, the AIF had, had fought so that we could all be free. Um, I found that deeply alienating. And I, sh I must say that I have, um, I have very little connection. I, I found it a deeply... Alienating all these people with their medals, and I have um, I have a very complicated relationship with um, Austria for obvious reason as um, a child of, of refugees. But as I saw all these people parading with their medals, <coughs> I had this momentary thought that my brother, who lives in Melbourne, has my great uncles. Um, won Austrian war medal. It was a war medal given to virtually everyone who served in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. My great-uncle, to a large extent, was protected and avoided a lot of war service. But I had this moment where I would have liked to have had it and be wearing it as <laughs> a kind of symbol of the different heritages of the yeah, people who live in this country. Mm. Um, yes. Frank? I was just thinking, as Tim was speaking then, that my great-uncle might have been shooting at him because he was in um, North, you know, northern Italy. I mean, he was mm. in that campaign. Um, I don't know if he had... I imagine he had medals, although he never... In fact, he, I can't ever... He lived next door to us, actually, and I can't ever recall him, um, you know, referring to the, his experience of the First World War, which as an Italian soldier must have been fairly horrific, I mm. imagine. Mm. Um, look, I... I'm attracted to the argument that I think for some people, and I take Peter's point, that, you know, it, it may be a bit like, relig you know, formal religious observance mm. in the sense that for some people it is clearly performing some kind of spiritual, mm. quasi-religious, numinous-type role. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, that the Abbott speech hints at, at how and why it's doing that, or at least how it's doing that. Um, I think the family, the issue of family connection is very important. Mm. Um, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, clearly a lot of people are attracted to Anzac as a kind of um, almost a cult, really, I think, because it, it, it's a way of expressing um, a sense of belonging through family, a sense of belonging to Australia through family. And that can have very conservative mm. implications because it clearly, it, it elevates, obviously, older, it elevates... Um, older families who, who can trace their origins mm. back, you know, before that, that great wave of, of mm. Second World War migration in particular, I think. Mm. Um, so I think, for me, those two elements are very important, but you, none of this would be happening without, as, as Peter says, the media role, I think, is, is immensely important. So is the education system. Mm. I mean, last year I attended my daughter's... Uh, my daughter's nine, so she grade three last year and year three... And, you know, they have an Anzac um, assembly, so it was probably a week or so before uh, Anzac Day on a Friday. 
And, you know, this is so different from my own upbringing in Melbourne of the 1970s, again, in a, a Catholic school. I mean, I don't recall Anzac being mentioned. I certainly don't recall mm. any participation in an Anzac Day service of any kind. And, indeed, I mean, I did history, as you'd expect, I guess, Australian history in Year 11 and 12. We actually did a course that must have gone for several months on Australia and the two world wars, and there was no teaching of the Anzac legend, mm. you know. So we, we learnt about the home front, in mm. fact, almost exclusively about the home front. Mm. So, you know, I, I think a lot of the emphasis on the battlefield, on fighting wars, is also something which, uh, you know, in the education system, you know, is, is of relatively recent revival. Mm. It certainly wasn't something I experienced back in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Um, right. So I think that there have been a lot of big changes of that, mm. of that kind. Mm. Meredith, have you got any thoughts about that? Uh, well, actually, interestingly, this was the first Anzac ceremony that I found myself attending since I was in boarding school in the 1960s. <laughs> and why, Meredith? Um, well, because, well, partly because I was in Japan for 20 years, but the other part is that I, in fact, do go back to Japan every April. And I, mm. By sheer happenstance, I miss Anzac Day, so I really had not come to any Anzac Day ceremony. And I live in Braidwood, I don't live in Canberra, so the one I saw was a little country town ceremony, mm -hmm. which was really very fascinating to me. I knew a lot of the people who were at the ceremony, of course, because Braidwood is a small, tight community. And, um, and I really wouldn't have gone, except that I had a couple of visitors from overseas who very much wanted to go. Mm. So I was not prepared for anything like what I found. Um, what astonished me was that it seemed to have transformed this little community for the space of this service, which went on for you know well over an hour, into a, a religious gathering, essentially. And I really did feel that very strongly. And I, I puzzled about it, partly because my memory of Anzac Day in the old days really was, as Frank was saying, very different. Um, also, I, being a, a late child of my father, my father was actually in the First World War, and I have very strong memories of his response to Anzac Day, which was to simply close his eyes and shake his head and turn his back. I mean, he would have nothing to do with it. He just couldn't bear the thought of the whole thing, even back then. Um, but what struck me, really, was that the transition that's happened since my father's time and was very clearly evident in this little ceremony in Braidwood was that... A hundred years has now passed, and we are allowed to make it what we will, and it has transformed itself into what we wanted, well, we, whoever we is, what it is required to be now. Nobody is around anymore to say no, mm. in a sense. Mm. There's no voice anymore to gainsay what's being done to it. And um, what struck me in Peter's essay very strongly was this idea of the valorization of things the lifting of language that was fascinating, Peter, to, to use words like, you know, I mean, the word sacred comes in, sacrifice. The fallen have become popular again. The fallen, exactly. When was the last exactly, time you heard yes, fallen? Yes. Mm. And yet it's all over the place nowadays. Yes, mm. yes. And the other interesting thing for me is that at the moment, actually, with a student at ANU, I'm reading a 13th century war tale. Um, this is a classic Japanese war tale, which is, you know, it's high literature. It's a wonderful literature, actually, very powerful. But it's a very fine example of what happens after a huge and tumultuous and very bloodthirsty war, which was in the, you know, in the, in the 12th century in Japan. Japan was torn apart by wars. This is essentially a heroic valorization of the losing side of that war. Mm -hmm. And it just fascinated me, the resonances between that tale and the sorts of things that were being said in Braidwood that day. It was mm. strange, strange continuities going on. Very interesting. And it's sort of, it's striking that in a, as you were saying, no one's around to say no, mm. but in a sort of secular age, that the, that quest for something which is of another dimension becomes, becomes caught up in it as well. I mean, one of the things that's been striking me a lot, and I'm, I'm, I'm not good with sentimentality, um, but you hear these stories, and I'm, I don't mean in any way to suggest that the people who are saying these things don't feel it deeply and personally, because I'm sure that they do. But one of the things that struck me in, in a lot of the talk that's been around is people walking around grave sites, people talking about great uncle, you know, 
Henry, who they never knew, but they're emoting about how he must have felt and mm. what he went through, which isn't, you know, I mean, I think anything that gets people to empathise with what others might be going through is actually a good thing on balance. Um, but what's worried me is this sort of sentimentality that's attached to it of, you know, what we think they felt mm. when yeah, the people who came said, back yeah. actually didn't want to talk about it, no. you know, no, at no, all. Many of them didn't, um, although we don't seem to be able to stop ourselves. But yeah, um, <laughs> Joan Beaumont said an interesting thing the other week. She, she said if, if a, a great-nephew or great-niece who goes to a grave in France and feels upset, if, if we call that grief, grief for somebody they never knew and had no understanding of, then what word do we use to describe the, the feeling of a, a bereaved a widow or, a, mm. or, or orphans? And it's, 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 yes, you don't like to say it's sentimental, mm. but we need to find a word that means the feeling, the emotion that people understandably feel, we all mm. feel, mm. when we think about mass death in war, mm. but we've got to make that different mm. to the feeling that the people who are directly involved felt. Mm. Mm. And we don't seem to be able to make that distinction. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. Threatening? Do you want to comment on that? On that, the, the, that sort of representation. I mean, you talked about your uncle. I mean, you know, presumably there wasn't a lot of discussion. <laughs> mm. I mean, I, I, the only reason I know, I suspect, my mother told me about mm. that one. Um, and I never. I mean, the other thing is, I don't know if I had all that much curiosity about it. Mm. I mean, I think that's again the education system mm. operating. Mm. That's that kids now are asking different sorts of questions. I mean, I've just rushed here from teaching a class called Debating Anzac. We, we, you know, this is a, a university course, should second and third year. should have brought them in here. Um, <laughs> in fact, I did, I did ask them, Peter, but it's very <laughs> difficult to get undergraduates at dinner time. To kind of, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Their experience as, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-olds of Anzac, of, indeed, historical consciousness, has been very, very different mm. from, from my own. Mm. And... It's not that... I mean, they're certainly not excessively sentimental. Mm. I mean, one of their favourite themes has been, you know, the commercialisation of mm. Anzac, which indeed mm. was our topic for this mm. week. Mm. And they've been assiduous about finding, you know, some incredible examples mm. of the commercial exploitation mm. of Anzac. But mm. then the really interesting questions with those students arise when we ask, well, why, you know, why are we offended by, say, Woolworths doing such and mm. such? You know, what was it? Fre um, yeah, freshen, freshen our memories. Yeah. And yet... No one seems to be deeply offended by Essendon and Collingwood um, involved in this highly sentimentalised ritual of, mm. of an AFL football game mm. on on Anzac Day, mm. and, and you know it, it, they've been, I think, really stimulated by thinking about those kinds of questions, mm. which clearly is something they hadn't been encouraged to think about coming out of school, mm. and it's been incredibly exciting because you know we, I guess, who teach Australian history often have this feeling that students are coming out of school quite bored with mm. it, mm. and they are. Mm. And one of the reasons they're bored is because, you know, they're, they're, they're made to feel guilty about some things mm. and very proud about some things, but, you know, perhaps not, not in a lot of cases, being taught a, a critical approach. Mm. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the invitation to think about um, some of these sorts of questions around ANZAC has been incredibly... Um, uh, I won't say enlightening, but stimulating for a lot of these students. Mm. It's a new experience, I think, because, you know, in a sense, what a critical history does is it takes it back away from, you know, this kind of sense of, of, of it being sacred territory mm. and, 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 and makes it human again. And I think mm. that's an incredibly important manoeuvre. Mm. Could, could we bring in Japan and, and mm. Germany, Austria into this? Because yes. both, both of those two nations, regions, have complicated relationships with things that Australians don't seem to feel yes. particular complication with. You know, Anzac is a straightforward cause for celebration and so on, a sad celebration. But, but both Austria and Germany and Japan have both got much more complicated mm. relationships. Mm. Do you want to talk about that? Mm. Sorry. I don't know. No, I'm pleased you did that. That's mm. good. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I can... If, if, if you're getting at their... Um, how they've gone about commemorating the First World War. Well, just thinking about war in their past. Yeah. I mean, def definitely with what I've been... Um, I mean, the, the Austrian... My, my, my focus is very much Austria. That's been mm. um, a big enough kind of thing for me to try and um, understand from a, a distance. And... Um, 
I mean, I had a really interesting experience earlier in the year um, where um, someone who had read my book and been at the ANU was coming back to the ANU as a visitor um, in one of the research schools. And he was talking about what it was like to be a student in Vienna in... Um, 1988, which was the first time they had a big commemoration of, mm. of the Anschluss. And he was talking about it being not a um, Gedenksjahr, but a Bedenksjahr. They use both terms, but Gedenk is more m memorialization mm. and mm -hmm. Bedenk is much more that you need to, to think about this. And he was talking about um, that there'd been... He talked about, it was interesting, he talked about 1988 as being a transformative year for him, that this was when he got a kind of new appreciation. He'd come from uh, Carinthia, um, which had been a very Nazi um, province, that there'd been an exhibition at the university um, about the... Um, about what the university had lost in 1938. And it was something like, I'll, I'll get the figures wrong, but in the science faculty, they had lost something like 70% of their faculty because 70% of their faculty were either Jews or from family, they, they were families of Jewish origin. Mm. And um, he said to me, and it may or may not be true, that he thought the university had never recovered, that this had been such a kind of devastation of their... Um, intellectual life um, and so that's I mean I they're the kind of things which I've been um, yeah the, the, the commemorations I've been interested in have been that one the one which happened now or there were big commemorations on the 50th anniversary in 2005 they commemorated when the the four powers um, the USSR USA Britain and France mm pulled out and Vienna stopped being a um, divided city and there were they're the kind of they're the things which I've engaged with rather than directly to do with war. But uh, Tim, it'd be interested to, for you to reflect on what you've written about in the essay, and that is about going to Dachau with your mother in 1971. I mean, she was obviously very determined that you were in touch with. Or was it in time? What, mm. what was the sort of the you know what was she? Do you think she was doing through through that travel? I mean, which was mm. somewhat unusual. Yeah. So 1971 um, was the first time that my mother, who had left Vienna two days after um, Crystal Night, um, was the first time that she returned to Austria, and we landed in Frankfurt and um, then made our way to Vienna. And it was the first time my brother and I had been there. And when we were in Munich, we went twice to Dachau. And I kind of make the quip, but I think we, we went twice to Dachau in three days. And I make the point, which I think is probably true, you know, who else in 1971 went there, went there twice? We went... Um, it was an education both for my mother and for us. Um, it was a way of her... Um, trying to understand. This was the first... We ended up going to several concentration camps, but it was sort of the first one we encountered. And it was... Yeah, it, she both personally and, I should say, also academically, she'd just begun teaching a course in German, writ large, cultural sort of history and broader kind of history. Mm -hmm. And so this was actually part of what she was teaching her students at the University of, of New England. Um, but I don't know if I actually say it in the essay, but one of the things... And I, I think that the, the fact that my grandfather had been there was something we didn't know, and she wouldn't have talked about the, the, the degree of sort of separation um, as a result of my parents' divorce was such that she... And my mother's animosity um, to my grandfather and his animosity to her was such that we did mm. this without um, personal connection. And it was only a couple of weeks... A couple of weeks later, we went to a small concentration camp called Erbensee, which is um, near Salzburg. 
and that was the first time that this was personalised for me and my brother because there was a cousin of my father's who lived in Melbourne who we knew as children who had been in Ebensee and mm. so that was the first time mm. that became mm. personalised. Mm. So Meredith, the, the bigger question about Japan is interesting but maybe on the sort of personal thing, I mean you go to Japan in what, in 19... Ah, yes, I went to live there in 19... What was it now? 1972, And so you've been learning Japanese... Yes, I did Japanese at university before I went here. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, um, well, actually the interesting thing is that when I very first went there, Hiroshima was the place that I felt obliged to go to because that was the place, one of the places that one went to. And, um, and I've never been back since because it was... I mean, it, it appalled me on so many levels. Mm. Um, but one of them was actually, when I think about it now, the fact that it... Uh, it's very hard to put your finger on it, but as a, as somebody who had been, well, as somebody from a country which had been complicit in what happened in Hiroshima, of course, the, the thing that you overwhelmingly go with is a sense of grief and guilt. And we were welcomed overwhelmingly by everybody in Hiroshima. All the you know the Japanese that I met were rushing around, trying to talk to us and to take us around and to show us and it was almost as though they were proud of what they had to show and I found it really very very disturbing um, but I now understand a lot more about what Hiroshima has become as a myth and it really is a case of, of the myth that unifies in the face of disaster it's, it's the suffering myth it's the, the victim myth um, it's also the kind of the way forward myth, which is, you know, we, we will fight all possibilities of this happening ever again in any part of the world. So it binds people in all sorts of ways. Um, but interestingly, when I was doing the work, the research for this essay that mm -hmm. I wrote, it was precisely that myth that in ironic ways somehow had managed to allow Fukushima or the, the, the nuclear build-up that led to Fukushima to happen in Japan. So how myths arise, why myths arise, what a defeated nation does by way of a myth that can nevertheless make the war a coherent story, it's all bound up with Hiroshima and all bound up with what happens when myths take over from a sense of the, the more complex realities, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. And so do you think that in Japan this year, I mean, because we've just had the anniversary of the Coral Sea, where mm. this, this, will, this will be a rolling, rolling activity, I mean, do you think that, that there is an appetite for an open conversation or is, it, is the sort of nationalistic sort of stuff closing in? Um, mm. in yeah, well, you know, I mean, it is complex. It's, as Peter mm. says, you can, you can cite the numbers of people who are making nationalistic noises and mm. numbers of people who go to these ceremonies and so on, and they're huge. But that's by no means all of Japan. Mm, mm. Um, my sense that is that, you know, I mean, Fukushima actually divided people very strongly. And although the Abe government is, is you know, very right-wing and very aggressively nationalistic and appears to have a great deal of support, of course, the voter numbers are so small that that means very little. Mm. And um, there's huge disaffection from politics, so, you know, there's really nothing that one can say about the right-wing swing in Japan mm. overall. Mm. But, um, yeah, my, my sense is that, you know, there's this sort of a... I don't know, there's a... there's a, a groundswell of questioning things without any sense that there can be an answer. Mm. There's a kind of a, a pressure coming down, which is the fact that, you know, the Japanese economy is so rocky that people are prepared to put aside all their values in order to save Japan from what they perceive as potential economic disaster. And, you know, on the one hand, there's a sort of urge towards rethinking a lot of the past, urge towards acknowledging more about what happened in China, for example, which is mm. a huge block in Japanese mm. public history. And and also rethinking, you know, the whole question of, of future energy sources and mm. all of those things are moving in one direction while the government and the economy and 
and you know, a very strong kind of backwash from all that, I suppose, is pushing in the other direction. There's mm. a lot of sense of pressure in Japan, I'm mm. feeling, at the moment. Mm. Mm. Very interesting. Um, this, this, this conversation can go in a whole <laughs> lot of different directions. <laughs> Which one are we going to grab? <laughs> um, I think what I'd quite like to do before we... And I'll open it up to uh, questions from, from the audience. Um, I'd quite like to go back to this sort of making of the nation um, discussion. Um, because... Obviously, it's one that has a lot of currency, um, the one that's very actively disputed. Um, but I think that's one that's got some really important bits in it that we need to sort of try and tease out a bit to understand what, what it is about war and creation of nations. I mean, obviously, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, at some level, you know, nations get created out of wars because somebody wins and somebody loses. Um, with putting aside the sort of frontier wars here, um, the wars that Australia's engaged in have been ones that have been elsewhere. Um, and so the sort of blood sacrifice that happens is about another place rather than about this place. And as I say, I'm, I'm talking about modern wars rather than frontier wars. Um, it's sort of... An, it's, there's an archaic thing in it. I mean, one of the things that's sort of really striking... Um, um, the figures, and I'm going to get them slightly wrong, but that before the First World War there were five empires in Europe and there were three independent nation, mm. republics. And by 1920 there were two empires and 20 republics and, you know, nine republics and 20 independent states, you know, that, and that the, the things that distinguished those nations were franchise and, um, you know, various forms of rights, which had been established here before that, um, but that sort of got swept aside in the sort of mm. political rhetoric. Frank, I mean, it's obviously a, it's a partisan political thing, isn't it? I mean, that that war was such a divisive... The First World War was such a divisive time in Australia. Um, yeah, I mean, the making of nation ideas... It, it's an interesting one. I mean, there was obviously a really powerful sense, I mean, really before the end of 1915, actually, that, you know, somehow... I mean, there are a number of metaphors used that are not entirely consistent. Sometimes it was the birth of the nation. Sometimes it's what? It, it's, it's a baptism of fire. Mm. And then sometimes it's a coming of age, mm. which I reminded my students was 21. <laughs> um, so, that, you know, different metaphors were used. But the, no, the, the, the idea that this was somehow a formative national moment is there from a very early stage. But I think that there's been a disjuncture because I, I think Gallipoli in particular has been rediscovered as a kind of founding moment really since about the 1980s. I mean, mm. once Australia ceased to be part of the empire, mm. once Australians ceased to think of themselves as British, which I think, you know, probably the critical decade there was the 60s, mm. you know, then you have this incredibly lively national identity debate. Who are we? Mm. What a navel-gazing goes on for a very long time. What should be our national day? You know, what's our role in the world? Who are we if we're no longer British? What, what's interesting is that Anzac doesn't immediately offer itself in that context. And I think the reason is it because it was seen as so marked by the olden days. Mm. This, it was... It was imperial, it was white, it was about old blokes, it was about, you know, the, the hymns of empire on Anzac Day, mm -hmm. oh God, our help in ages mm -hmm. past and all the rest of it. <laughs> you know, to, to intellectuals in the 60s, you know, writing lead articles in, say, The Australian, I mean, Anzac Day isn't offering itself, they, mm -hmm. they look elsewhere. But then something happens that I think people are still trying to untangle, whereby by about certainly the end of the 1980s, it has been identified in that kind of role. And it's kind of being, I think, refounded mm. as, as, as a kind of a, 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 a national um, birth moment, if mm. you like, mm. in, that, in that period. Mm. And there's a number of theories at the moment that historians are kind of floating around for why that happens. But I think it's very well, just, interesting. It's worth explaining yeah. that because it's yeah. a good thing that's segue to, to mm. Peter. So do, do you want to just do the, the Mark McKenna theory? You know, yeah, well, Mark McKenna is one of the most interesting, actually. And, and Mark's... Uh, argument is essentially it's about really what he says is the failure of the bicentenary and in particular, you know, January the 26th, Australia mm. Day, to, to act as a kind of a binding sort of myth, a, a binding occasion, a, a, a set of ritual ceremonies 
because it's so contested, obviously, you know, what, what was one person's settlement was another person's invasion. Mm. And, and, of course, the bicentenary itself brought out those conflicts mm. very sharply, mm. you know, most dramatically on, on Australia Day itself mm. in Sydney, of course. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and so Mark's idea is that Anzac essentially suggests itself and is promoted by government too, so it's partly a top-down thing, mm. as a safer alternative mm. coming out of 1988. And, of course, the timing is perfect because it leads into what yeah. Tim was talking about earlier with the, the 1990 uh, 75th, which is such a critical moment. You had Bob Hawke and John Hewson taking a delegation uh, you know, t over to Turkey. I think there's about 50 old-timers, um, including a handful of uh, original uh, you know, first-dayers. Um, and so, yes, it, it, Mark's idea is that it comes out of really the, the, the failure um, of, of both the bicentenary and Australia Day more generally mm, mm. to perform that kind of role. I think it's a very interesting idea. It's probably not quite enough mm, mm. To, to explain it. I think we need other, ex, you know, other factors as well, but I think it's, it's a very interesting explanation. Mm. So, Peter, in terms of your writing about frontier wars and so on, I mean, it's mm. an interesting, interesting way of joining the, joining the bits, isn't it? Mm. Uh. Certainly, the, the bicentenary, the Mark McKenna explanation makes sense because it means that the conjunction with Bob Hawke's 1990 Gallipoli speech, so that the dissatisfaction with the bicentenary is a, makes people receptive to Hawke's rhetoric in 1990. Mm -hmm. But doesn't it suggest something about how ill-informed Australians are about their history? Because we swallow these things as a nation. I mean, we, none of us here believe that Australia should be a white dominion anymore. None of us believe that Australia has to be a part of the British Empire. But lots of us believe that Australia was somehow born as a nation in 1915 when it had been formed as a nation 15 years, be 14 years before. And it, why can't we shake off that kind of limited ahistorical thinking and, and not face facts, the, mm. the, the frontier war, as you mm. say, the... the Wars overseas aren't the first wars for Australia. Mm -hmm. Clearly, there's a war inside Australia. But even now, lots of Australians are re re resistant to that idea, to, to, mm -hmm. to confront that idea, in a way in which people of Japan and Austria are not reluctant to confront the difficulties mm -hmm. of their history. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I guess I just find a, this kind of reduction of Australian history just incredibly sad. I mean, mm -hmm. if I think of, um, going back to Peter Cochrane, um, his book, Colonial mm -hmm. Ambition, mm -hmm. you know, a truly wonderful book. But mm -hmm. the, the richness of the um, society which Peter recreates in early New South Wales, the, 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 the extraordinary richness of their kind of political discussion and the, and the fabulous kind of characters who in, inhabit that book. I mean, there's something really exciting mm -hmm. about, in a way, the quality of some of that mm -hmm. society. Or if I think about work I did at one point when just before I wrote about Burke and Wills, when I was interested in that kind of Victorian society of the gold rushes, and it ties a bit with the essay you mm. mentioned, the kind of the, the sort of German Melbourne mm. and the extraordinary, the, these people like Ferdinand von Müller or mm. Georg Neumeyer or Eugene von Gerard, um, um, that kind of multicultural society mm. which e existed then. And, and so, I mean, there are... Yeah, and, and there's, you know, you, just, you can go on and on about how this nation has been created and... Um, and, and, and things which one should be celebrating mm. uh, and critiquing, but also celebrating, and they just sort of mm. fall out the window. Mm. Well, they're thrown out the window. They're thrown out the, the great right. wall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they get yeah. pushed out. This, this, yeah. this yeah. thing op occupies so much space yeah. mm. that these other things... And there's also a lack of proportion about the world of, say, 1915. I mean, yes, Australia was made in a formal political sense in 1901, but, you know, Australia still has many of the trappings of a colony during the First World War. Mm -hmm. I mean, surely a mark of a colony is not being particularly fussed about high strategy. That is mm. about, you know, the, the, the ways in which your soldiers, for instance, are being used in a strategic sense in a great war. I mean, what a great definition of a colony. Mm. And this is what... A, by, Australia wasn't a colony by World War II in that sense, but mm. it was in World War I, mm. on my reading. I mean, mm. yeah, no, you I know agree. much more about but, this. But the wars, are, but the wars are... Shifting points in the, the evolution of nationhood, um, but, but it's as Tim says, simplistic yeah. to think that that one event on the 25th of April 1915 changes everything. Yeah, and these but entities that, that Tim was just talking about in the 19th century that Peter's written about, 
there was a sense that they were nations. They sometimes talk about mm. themselves mm. as There's nations. Of... New South Wales yeah. and Crown yeah. Victoria. Yeah. Um, you know, th there was a sense of, as you say, confidence about, about their place in the world that has now been almost lost because of you know, this overlay. Yeah. But, the, but, the, but the other thing which is important in that, in that First World War period is the, um, is, is the intensity of the split over conscription. Mm. You know, that, that that was an intensely political fight, yeah. um, which, you know, I mean, it has elements of sectarian and, uh, sectarianism and, you know, national identity and so on tied up in it. But, you know, you know it was voted down twice, you know. Well, it'd be interesting to see whether the two conscription referenda are commemorated with the same sort of enthusiasm well, that we've seen in, the other in fact, week. Claire Wright was saying when, when yeah. ABC Radio National was running this yeah. thing where they were saying, ring up and tell us your story of your family suffering, she said, yeah. I really want them to say, ring up and tell us the story of your family, you know, who may have been opposed to yeah, the war. Exactly. Tell us the other, yeah. the other yes. bits of these yeah. stories, yeah. you know, so we've got yeah. something that's, yeah. that's what a, a bit richer. And what a great story conscription makes in a way. I mean, it's often been constructed as, yeah, this divisive moment, which it was. Mm. I mean, it's a traumatic divisive moment in all sorts of ways. But here's a society at war that basically allowed its population right. to vote twice mm. on whether young men would be compelled to go to the other yeah. side of the world and fight mm. and kill. Um, this is a, a great story of democracy. Yeah, exactly. and, and what historians are rediscovering is that the arguments that were put against conscription were arguments about liberty. Mm. They were arguments about freedom. They were arguments about individual liberty. Mm. This is a great democratic story, yeah. and, and I hope that there will be um, celebration of that Don't story hold your breath. in the years ahead. <laughs> <laughs> not, Meredith, not, not as much as we've just seen. Meredith, did you want to contribute yeah. anything on that? Making that, that um, well, I was just thinking, of course, from Japan's point of yeah. view, the question of how a nation gets made... Japan was attempting to make itself as a modern nation through the war mm. and failed so spectacularly that it really had to rebuild itself entirely mm. after the defeat. Mm. And um, one of the things that's quite hard for people outside Japan to realise is just how, how desperately people had to erase as much memory as possible of everything that had led to that point in order to start rebuilding themselves psychically. Mm. Um, as well as physically. I mean, Japan was just devastated by the war physically. But, um, but how to make themselves anew, this whole question of how to make their nation was one of the things that was probably in everybody's mind as the Atoms for Peace message was beginning to come through from America in the early 50s, which said, this, this will be the new seed from which your nation can grow into this wonderful, peaceful, prosperous new place where you can forget about the war, the bad atom, and take on all the promise of the new atom and it will make your nation for you. This is, this is the promise of the century. And, you know, the need to make a nation anew was such a raw need at that point that everybody was extremely vulnerable to this new message. Mm. So how that worked in with... And I think not just Japan, but actually across Europe and, you know, in, in many places. Well, actually, across... You know, you look at China. I mean, well, indeed, yeah, yes, yeah, and yeah, Russia yeah, and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 